would go ahead and have a seat. I'm going to uh, pray briefly for uh, God to move in the midst of his word. God and Father, this is your word. Uh, We don't pretend like it is anything else here at this church. We believe that it is no less your word than if you were speaking it to us here in this room today. So we take it seriously and we ask you that in the power of the spirit that we would be uh, enlightened by it. Lord, that we would have understanding and clarity in it. And Lord, that we would be changed and transformed forever in the midst of it. Lord, we uh, pray this to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I mentioned uh, a moment ago, we're in chapter 3 of Galatians, continuing to move through that book. We're going to be picking up in verse 15 through 18. And I want to mention this right off the uh, bat, because if you missed last week, uh, it was a bit of a part A, part B. We did a lot of work last week that we're going to be picking up on this week. So if, uh, if you hear something and you're like, man, I don't see the math on that, you might go back and just reference that. If you were here last week and you still don't see the math, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take credit for that. That's probably just on me at that point. But um, if, if you hear anything that you feel like, man, we really rushed through that. I need to see a little bit more there. Feel free to go back because we are going to be building on what we have already done there. Um, I, I want you to know also that this will be a little briefer uh, this morning because we do have that uh, member-ish meeting right afterwards. So if you're a member on your way towards membership, please plan to stick around. We've got a lot of fun things that we're going to be Cast, forecasting a vision for for uh, 2022, and that's going to include uh, people that are wanting to uh, be in discipleship groups, form discipleship groups, and the like. So um, I want to kind of commence this sermon, though, this morning with a question uh, that I really honestly want you uh, to consider, and that is, are you a promise keeper? Uh, and by that, I don't really mean, have you ever told a lie? Uh, clearly, everybody stands, you know, in front of the law that says, you know, do not bear false witness. And we all fall short of that glory. Uh, but what I do mean is, do you have a value for promise keeping? For most of us, we do value uh, promises. We value people promising things to us, but we give a little bit of grace to ourselves in other areas, and we find ourselves more willing to be promise breakers in other areas of life. But here's what we do know. Whether you are a promise keeper or not, promise keeping is really hard. It's really hard work, especially when you're just put in a situation where like a a little bit of a lie will will relieve a lot of discomfort, will help us kind of get around a situation. But here's what I do know, what I think that I know, is that promise breaking has led to a real crisis in our society. Recently, I was listening to a lecture from one of my uh, famous, uh, uh, favorite British writers. He's not quite famous, but he's a guy that you might have heard of, named Peter Hitchens. And he was uh, talking, he was giving this lecture after he had written a book about the downfall of Great Britain. He said uh, the premise of the book was that Great Britain had lost all of this influence over the last century, especially since World War II and he was writing about the reasons why that is, and so he came and gave a lecture and uh, and said why it was. And he said that really that there were two things that kind of were the beginning of the end of British influence in the world. The first one was an obscure thing that a lot of people in our generation don't know about. It was the Suez Canal crisis. Uh, You can go read on Wikipedia if you're interested about that, but essentially... uh, Great Britain tried to exert a lot of influence, and the world kind of laughed at them because they didn't really have the influence that they were trying to exert in that situation. But the other one really caught me by surprise. I think it will for you too. 
He says that the downfall of Great Britain happened in the 60s. It was really initiated in the 60s, and it was the no-fault divorce law that I believe was passed in Great Britain in 1968, if I'm remembering why. Now, now the, the, the question is, why would a no-fault divorce law be the downfall of a country's influence throughout the world? Here's what you need to know. Peter Hitchens is a contrarian thinker, and he, he thinks a lot about things, and he writes very broadly. He's a, nearly a philosopher, though he would kind of categorize himself as a journalist. And he says this. He says that marriage is, among other things, a contract, a promise. There's a lot of things that a, that a marriage is, but at, uh, at, at some level, it's a contract between two people. It's a promise. It's a covenant between two people. And what he stipulates is that that uh, law, that no-fault divorce law, uh, switched everything around in Great Britain. Previously, if you had made a contract with another person, if you had made a business contract, and then you had broken that contract and walked into a court, there would be fault that would be found. It wouldn't be easy to get out of a contract. There would be penalties for that. But here in the no-fault divorce law, one of the people in a contract, in a covenant, in a promise could come to a court, break that promise, really, at the end of the day, without any fault being assigned, without anybody really kind of uh, going in and taking a look at why that contract was broken. Marriage being a contract, a promise, meant that there was an entire generation of children who endured broken hearts caused by the broken promises of their parents. And what that did societally, in order to uh, lead to the deterioration of Great Britain's influence around the world, according to Peter Hitchens, was that it essentially deteriorated trust. It broke trust. It decreased trust. And what that did is it had a lot of other kinds of effects in that society. He said that social cohesion started to drift apart trustworthiness started to wane, faith faith in institutions began to fall, and it was all because of this. And what it led to was a society with a lot of cynicism, a lot of skepticism, and a lot of selfishness. Why? Because marriage is a vital part of what teaches us and our children in generations to keep promises. Is it, it, would I say it the way that maybe Peter Hitchens did? I don't know. I, I, I'll give it some more thought. But I thought that it was really intriguing. The, the amount of emphasis that he put on promise keeping really kind of struck me. I had to stand back and go, wow, can promise breaking within marriage end nations? Does it really have that kind of power and influence? Well, if we do view it this way, if we say that... Uh, Promise keeping teaches children's and generations to continue keeping promises. We have to say at some level it plays a part. Since marriage is a public portrayal of Jesus in the church, that's what City Church believes. That's what uh, traditionally churches have believed worldwide is that uh, something in a marriage talks about Jesus' love for his bride, the church. And since We see these kinds of divorces all the time. What we have to say is that divorce is a kind of heresy. It tells a lie about who God is. It then follows that generations of brokenhearted children and parents would ask then also, is God a promise keeper? 
Do you see what I'm saying? If marriage begins to deteriorate, if all of these people begin breaking promises at kind of a societal level, and if what God has said is, is that marriage is this like beautiful portrayal of Jesus' love for his church, that when that begins to rip on a societal level, people will begin asking the question, is God a promise keeper? Is he going to keep his promises to the bride, the church? And that's what I think that we discover a little bit in this passage. Last week we discovered that God made promises. He made a covenant with a man named Abraham. And the question that's going to be in front of us in this passage today, is God going to keep it? Does God keep his promises? That's what we're going to read. So let's read this together. Paul begins saying, to give a human example, brothers, even when a man-made covenant Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not, annul, uh, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it was no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. This is the word of the Lord. So what I think that we discover in this passage, what I intend to prove in some sense this morning, is something about these covenants, these promises that are made, but then also tie that in to something very specific. I want to tie it to doubt. Okay, so what I think that we discover here in this passage is that God crushes our doubt by always keeping his promises. Do you struggle with doubt? You remember when we were talking about that earlier, when we were praying about it earlier? Do you struggle with doubt? At some level, it's going to be a question of whether or not God keeps his promises. So this morning, we learn that God crushes our doubt by always keeping his promises. And we're going to get there uh, through studying three things. We're going to see the charge that's brought this morning by the Judaizers. We're going to see the rebuttal that Paul gives. And then we're going to see the destruction of doubt. Those are the three things that we're going to discover this morning. So the first one is the charge. Now, Paul has not, we don't, we don't know whether or not he's received this kind of charge from the Judaizers, but from last week with what we discovered about the promises that were made to Abraham, the covenant promises that are then extended to God's people through faith, we at least know that what Paul is doing is assuming that he knows what the charge is going to be. So what is the charge? What, what is being brought against Paul's argument here? Well, Paul continues to loose this yoke of slavery that the Judaizing legalists were putting on the Galatian Christians. Last week, we said that it was the free gift of grace that we receive in faith and that that was the blessing of Abraham. Now we believe and we are being told by Paul that faithful Christians are the outworking of God's gracious promise to Abraham to establish a family of faith. And we learned last week this glorious news that you are a part of that family. Not a part of some other family or other dispensation, not some other time in God's redemptive history. You are a part of God's family if 
You place your faith in Jesus Christ, just like Abraham placed the trust in God. Abraham had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This passage anticipates doubt in these promises. Doubts that God promises freedom by faith. Paul has made the point that Abraham was saved by faith and that there is one covenant of grace. However, he foresees the charge that is being brought by the Judaizers, these false teachers, that they might bring regarding the law. And we see it in verse 17. Look at it with me. It says this, The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. The charge that he's anticipating is very simple. He thinks that these legalistic Judaizers are going to come back and say, okay, we don't know that Abraham was saved by faith the way that you're saying that he was, but we'll give you the point. We'll say, okay, maybe he was saved by faith, but 430 years after Abraham's life, the law comes into effect. Does that not change anything? That's what he's going to assume that these Judaizers are saying. The charge anticipates that Abraham was saved by faith, but then came the law. There is a serious problem in this charge. Now, we, we've heard Paul use some really serious language about these Judaizers. We've, we've seen him use a lot of serious language with people that he really loves. He called the Galatian Christians fools for being bewitched. He's using some strong language here. But what we discover here is that when he anticipates all of this, that there is actually a serious problem for those of us who believe that we are in one covenant of grace through faith. And it's one that travels through time and meets us today. And here's the problem. If God promised Abraham to save him by faith and then gives him a faithful family, but then switched to the law midstream, then God has broken his original promise. Okay, so if you are in a vein of theology that believes that uh, there, well, he dealt with different people at different times, you entered into God's family in different ways at different times, you've got a problem. We've got a problem. Because at least at some level, you have to deal with the fact that it seems as though God is breaking a promise. The covenant with Abraham was made, and if he switches to a legalistic law, then his word to Abraham is not trustworthy. That's a serious problem. So what I hope, what I hope that you hope, is that Paul has a really good answer for that charge, that his, his rebuttal is really good because the charge is deathly serious, and it has to do with your and my salvation, and it has to do with those things that we doubt about whether or not can truly save us. What is Paul's rebuttal? It's simple and it's strong, but it also has a lot of implications for us to explore. Verse 15, he starts off just by saying to give a human example. So he's going to give us an example. He's going to give us an allegory for the way that we can kind of understand what it is that uh, his rebuttal is going to take, what position it's going to take against these legalistic people. He says to give a human example, brothers... So he's not switching to talk to the Judaizers. He's still addressing the people that he considers brothers. 
Even with a man-made covenant, you cannot annul and you cannot ratify, or you can't change it or add to it once it has been ratified by God. So, so even, even amongst the like covenants that we make, now here's the problem. We all sit here and go, oh, I know all kinds of like legal wills that you can modify that, you know, uh, we have lawyers in this room that make a good living actually modifying different types of legal contracts. So what I had to do was go back and see like, what is the context for this? Were, were you able to, you know, change things about the agreements that you made in ancient days? And the answer is yes. Sometimes. You, you could make promises in a world where you didn't have, like, uh, the ability to send a Google Doc to someone or uh, make, like, a contractual arrangement. When you were living, essentially, in these groups, in these tribes, in these towns, the word of someone was really important. So I believe in some ways that the ancient world took these kinds of covenants very seriously. So even amongst Greeks and Romans and Jews, there were certain kinds of covenants, certain kinds of promises that you could make and that you had to keep. Even if new information came along, even if there was a new party that had some interest, there were certain kinds of contracts that you made and you must keep them. That was one of the ways that they kept some social cohesion, some order. So what we find here is that that's the kind of contract that Paul is trying to talk about. The kinds of covenants that you could not, null, uh, could not nullify, could not modify, and that you held, and these were fairly common. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, not offsprings referring to many. So what, what is he trying to say here? Paul is actually returning to the legal contract, and he's just reading it in some ways. He's remembering the promises that were made to Abraham, and he's just simply and literally saying he made them to his offspring, referring to one. And, and this works on two levels, because what Paul is going to say is that there is one offspring in terms of people, which is great news for us. We learned last week that we are included in that one faithful family, that one offspring. But he's actually going to mention another person that is the offspring. So it's not many, it's one. There is one faithful family and they are all saved by faith not by works. How do we know this? Because he mentions the specific offspring that was promised to bless all nations for all time. You remember the covenant promise that was made to Abraham was that he was going to make him into a great nation. And that if through his offspring, he was going to bless all nations. And here we see who is the blessing of that nation. Who's the offspring of Abraham? Look, it says, by referring to offspring, your offspring, who is Christ? In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Who will they be blessed by? By your offspring. Who is your offspring? Singular, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one literal offspring of Abraham who is redeeming the one family from the curse by faith. That's what's happening here. 
That's kind of a review from last week, but he's giving a rebuttal saying that there are not many different types of people out there. There is only one. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. What's the problem with, problem with that? Look at the end of the sentence. It says, but God promised. Do you have doubts? Do you have doubts that God is a promise keeper? These legalists did. Inherently, they were speaking against the promise. They were saying that the inheritance comes by way of the law. Those who do the law are going to receive the inheritance, but Paul is correcting that. He's standing up for the one true gospel saying, no, 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 you get the inheritance by faith, not by the law. Why? Because God promised. So the thing that we've got to deal with this morning is, is God a promise keeper? So he, he, he just dives in on it. He said, so the arrival of this law after 430 years after God extended his covenant of grace to Abraham into Abraham's offspring did not annul, it did not add to the sure promise that God made that you would be justified by faith alone. So here's the question. If we're going to stand on that truth of the gospel and just say you are saved forever and all time by grace through faith, how do we make sense of the law? These uh, legalistic Judaizers were bringing that forward and saying it changed everything, and Paul's saying it didn't. So how do we now make sense of the law? It's a little complex, but what I want to do is actually enter into how the law impacts this. It's no good to pretend like the arrival of the Mosaic law didn't raise some questions, so let us ask those questions. The question that I specifically came up with was, how does the Mosaic law relate specifically to the covenant of grace that we have by promise? And what I think that we, there are lots of places in the Old Testament where I think that we get a really good answer to that question, but the one that I want to share with you this morning is Deuteronomy 7, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read them, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go slow so that we can hear how the law relates to this covenant that was made with the forefathers. Verse 11, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statues, and the rules that I commanded you today. Sounds like something's changed. And because you listened to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, multiply you, he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. I'm going to repeat that last promise. You shall be blessed above all peoples. 
Okay, so, so in that passage there, we have this commandment to obey, to observe, to follow the laws that were given to Moses on that day. But he says the word, why, why is he going to do that? Because, because he's going to keep the covenant that he made of love and faith and grace with the fathers. Who's the father? It's Abraham in this instance. Abraham is the father. So, so how do we make sense of that? It says, because you listen and do the law, God will keep his loving commandment. God's grace is received by condition of faith in the promise. Okay, if you want to know how to receive God's covenant blessing, if you want to know how to receive all of the love that he ever had to give, if you want to know how to make that yours, what you need to understand is that you need to have faith in God's promises just like Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And God made this forever covenant of grace and extended it to Abraham. And now he's saying that the law is being expressed in the same kind of way. God's grace is received by condition of faith in the promise and continues on the condition of faith by doing the law. That's a confusing concept. And what I tried to do was just rack my brain on how to describe, how to illustrate this in a way that we can understand that it's all about faith. It's all about faith. Even when you get to the law, it's all about faith. One of the best gifts that I was ever given as a kid came on Christmas. I think it was my seventh grade or eighth grade year. I got a yellow drum set. It wasn't like a pansy yellow either. It was like 70s rock star, like yellow, okay? And they were loud, and it was awesome. It was one of the best, most gracious gifts that I ever received. I had expressed just a little bit of interest in drumming, and my parents said, uh, very uncharacteristically, I would say, we're going to go all out this Christmas and give you a drum set. And then I thought the next year, man, how are they going to top that? And they didn't top that. It was one of the best gifts that I've ever received. But here's, here's what you need to know. A lot of the gifts that we give, a lot of the gifts that we get come with responsibilities. It was no good to take that drum set, set it up in my room, and just look at it. And just go, man, what a gracious gift I just got. No, no, no. I had to play them. I had to discipline myself to uh, learn paradiddles and triplets, and I had to, uh, very poorly, mind you, learn how to drum. The, the drums came with the responsibility, in some sense, to learn how to play them. We, we get gifts like this all the time. It's not something that I'm just trying to uh, bring out in this passage. If you've ever received a pet, guess what's coming along with the pet? It's not just the gracious gift. you got a lot of responsibility now. Congratulations. That's why we don't have a dog in the Taylor household. If you get a car, yeah, I'll take the amens. Um, if you get a car, if you were given a car when you were 16, many of us had to work for them. If you were given one, great. You still had to provide insurance for that. You had to be a safe driver. You had to learn how to use it. If you're ever given a gift of money, we all know that it's no good to take and receive that gracious gift and just blow it on nothing. You're supposed to steward it. You're supposed to foster it. You're supposed to be thankful and grateful for it. You're supposed to cherish it. The best gift, the best you know, uh, gift by far and away that I've ever received is my wife's hand in marriage. It changed my life. It's the best gift 
I mean, period, end of paragraph. It was the most gracious gift. Sawyer gave herself to me, and I gave myself to her, and we made a promise to one another to be with one another for the rest of our lives. I mean, just the most amazingly gracious gift. And if I continued on to pretend as though nothing had happened, if we never consummated our marriage, if I never spoke to her again, if I never uh, just saw a responsibility to provide spiritually and nourish and wash my wife in the water of the word, if I didn't care for her, if I didn't uh, tend to the needs, if I didn't share her burdens, if I didn't cry with her, if I didn't celebrate with her, if we didn't have children together, if I didn't do these things, the question is, was I ever married? Did the promise mean anything at all? Here's the truth. We are filled at a time in history where there are lots of people that say that they have been saved by grace through faith, that they were regenerated, that they were baptized in some church, and they live in a completely different world, in a completely different way. What is the law? What is the law? Is it a legalistic thing that you need to follow? Man, my wife would tell you, no, the promise that I made with her, if it just came with a list of duties that I was just exactingly specific on, she might like it for a day, a few days, but at some level, it's just like no affection, no love, no care, no nothing in the midst of that. Your salvation is this package of grace, endless grace that you receive by faith And when you open up the package, there are many, many immense blessings. And one of those things, one of the responsibilities by faith that's inside of that package is obeying the commands of God who loves you. So you're saying we should make uh, animal sacrifices. No, no, no. There is one sacrifice that has bought all sins. When we get legalistic about the law today, there are things that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ that we need not do. We don't need to make animal sacrifices anymore. Praise God. Dirty work. We can look towards Jesus on the cross and know that it was his blood that satisfied that forever need that was there as a part of our sin and condemnation to atone for that, and we can look on Jesus rather than making animal sacrifices. But when I hear the law say, thou shalt not bear false witness, man, for the God that sent his son to die on a cross for my sins, guess what obeying that command becomes? A delightful duty of faith. When I hear, uh, you know, uh, don't commit adultery from God, do I just go like, he doesn't know me, I'll do what I want. No, no, no. Living out the law becomes what is best for me. God gave it to me. And in faith, I work out that moral law as a delightful duty of faith. Here's what I don't think that I can do this morning. I don't think I can make that fully real to you. These men that were having this interchange many years ago were baffled by some of the mystery of the law. I'm not going to be able to fully expose, fully reveal this mysterious coming together of faith in receiving grace and faith in the doing of the law. But what I really hope to do is to give you like a really beautiful picture that these things go together under one covenant of grace. So how are you saved? 
by dutifully doing the legal letter of the law? No, no, Paul rebuts that. He rebukes that. He says that that is under a curse. We get to live an expression of faith by obeying the commandments of Christ. We can conclude then that the law is not a new dispensation, but an expression of the same promise that was made. I can't be married and not delightfully doing the things that are required of a husband. We cannot be uh, children of promise and not live like sons, obeying the word of the Lord. So here's the question for you this morning. Do you live in doubt? Do you doubt God's promise? Do you see the law back there in the Old Testament and go, God, how could you? Or do you see the difference between this faith that Abraham had and this legalistic law and just go, God just can't even just seem to make up his mind. Did he break a promise somewhere? Where did I miss it? I think you missed it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, like we just talked about. But for those who are doubting faith, for those who are look, uh, lacking assurance, I want to do one last thing. I want to destroy that doubt. I, I think that what God wants to do is destroy the doubt because God destroys doubt by always keeping his promises. The good news here is that Abraham was saved by faith and you are saved by faith. The Galatians were saved by faith. The greatest good news of all time is that you can receive God's favor, you can be in his family by faith in the unfolding of his redemptive plan, his promise of salvation by grace through faith should destroy any doubts that you have. You see, God's gracious promise was made to Adam. And that was made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. It was made to Joseph it was made to Moses, it was made to Aaron, it was made to Jesse, it was made to David, it was made to Solomon, and it was fulfilled in Jesus. And now that promise extends straight through the cross of Christ, heads vertically through the resurrection and extends straight to you, taking you to the throne of God. Let the good news of grace by faith destroy every doubt that you have. You can surely obtain access in God's forever family by faith, by trusting his promise of grace that he made to Father Abraham and knowing that you are one of his many sons or daughters. You can trust him because he has always made good on his promises, even when it cost his own son his life on the cross. That's how faithful he is to his promises. That's how much assurance you can have that God loves you and extends his grace to you by faith is because he was willing to kill his own son to bring you into everlasting fellowship with him. You can destroy doubt by faithfully obeying his commandments, the moral law. Show me it. Tell me, tell me, tell me, where did Jesus say that? He said, go baptizing, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus is saying, go make disciples. Disciples, how do we do it? By teaching them to have faith in the grace that is freely provided them. And then what do they do? They obey 
They obey the commandments of Christ. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. You're saved by faith. You're saved by faith. There's no distinction between these two. Do not let Judaizers lie to you. Do not let your legalistic heart lie to you. Faith in works of the law, legalism, we found out last week, leads to a curse. It is a cursed life to live underneath the oppressive regime of legalism. You are not justified by the law. God's one covenant of grace cannot be annulled because it has been ratified. It has been sealed in the blood of Jesus. Salvation is had by faith in our promise-keeping God and is expressed by faithfully obeying him. Not only has God kept his gracious promises, God is keeping this, his promises this very day through you. And one day, the full graciousness of his promise will be fully revealed. As it says in Revelations 22, verse 34, it has something to say about that curse, and it has something to say about the day that the faithful will be ushered into his presence. It says this, no longer will there be anything accursed. I'm going to read that just amazing promise and ask you to believe it. One day... No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Amen. Do you believe it? Let us pray. Father, you make such good promises. Your design, your redemptive plan is so big, it's so glorious, it's so great, and your promises are always fulfilled. Father, here in Revelation, we read that there will no longer be anything accursed, but that the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it, and the servants will worship Him, and they will reign with Him forever in His light. So, Lord, we ask this morning that You would allow for Lord Jesus to come, that Your will and Your promises might be fulfilled completely, and that we would see it with our very own eyes, that we would see Your face with our very own eyes. Let us before our eyes see the destruction of every doubt, knowing that you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, this people longs to see your face and to have your names written on us and to live in your light and to live under your rule and to rule with you forever and after. So Lord, this morning we make a simple profession together at City Church saying we believe your promises. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.